If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. It was the decade in which the AIDS pandemic transformed our relationship with sex and sexuality. MTV transformed the way we consume music. Princess Diana transformed the relationship between royalty and the media and Margaret Thatcher transformed the political landscape. In this Everything You Want to Know episode, we're dialing back the clock to discuss Britain in the 1980s. To answer your questions on the subject, Spencer Mizzen sat down with the historian Lucy Robinson, the author of Now That's What I Call a History of the 1980s. Well, hi Lucia, thanks for joining us today. We're here to talk about... Britain in the 1980s, a decade that many of our listeners will be old enough to remember. And unfortunately, so am I. Um, Now, the dominant figure of the 1980s, in terms of the British political landscape, at least, was, of course, Margaret Thatcher. So I thought we could dive in at the deep end and start by talking about her. Now, we've had, as you may expect, loads of questions sent in about Britain's first female prime minister and frankly could feel about 10 podcasts uh, talking about her alone. But let's just start with this one. And that is, can you pick out three ways in which Thatcherism changed Britain in the 1980s. Yeah, I can. And what's interesting is immediately you start thinking about Thatcher. What did Thatcher do? But actually, it is the ism that actually is kind of explains how change happens. One individual politician, however, you know, however iconic they are, does not actually change the whole world around them. They are part of that world. Um, and I was thinking about kind of what were, what are the big legacies and we can feel some of those legacies around us in terms of new technology or even the language that we use or the food that we like and those kind of things. But in terms of the big themes, the three that I came up with were 
kind of environmentalism, thinking globally, particularly at the end of as we come out of the Cold War, thinking about the environmental threat rather than thinking about the Cold War threat. Um, And the second one is really the undoing of the post-war settlement, which I think we're now living out the last bit of that. But the end of that balancing act between the sacrifice that civilians and combatants had given for the country for peace in the Second World War, being paid off by having better quality homes, better quality healthcare, access to the NHS, um, free at the point of access, the, the welfare state, basically, and seeing the drawing back of that. And with that, I think, a shift from a kind of collective view to an individual individualised view and thinking about rights as terms of individual rights rather than a collective good moving back to kind of almost pre-second world war versions of victorian values the deserving and the undeserving poor combined with ideas of the underclass sex morality the importance of the family i think those post-thatcherism that welfare state moment when we're all in it together and the state has a responsibility and the possibility to ameliorate the worst elements of capitalism or competition that now looks like a little blip and thatcherism kind of marks the end of that blip i think and with that also kind of lines around the relationship between the police and government or employers so the use of police to maintain or enforce one side in a dispute so I'm thinking about the removal of the the removal of the kind of right to travel and the policing of the removal of the collective right to travel so that might be ravers and travellers and the battle of the beanfield that might be secondary pickets and orgreave or flying pickets at Wapping, or in, indeed in Northern Ireland, and the right to be um, the police's rights to stop and search. So there's a kind of shifting around between individual and collective rights. That I think we still live with very much, and a shifting around of the police's relationship with authorities, whether that's employers or, or government policy, and the public. Can you also, can you elaborate a little bit on the environmental angle you just mentioned? I wasn't actually expecting you to bring that up in the discussion. That's really interesting. Can you, can you yeah, can you drill down into that a little bit more, please? Yeah, but it's one of the things that I've, that I've thought about quite a lot, actually. And I think Glastonbury is a really good example of this, right? So for most of the 1980s, Glastonbury Festival is associated with Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, CND. Um, it's their big event. It raises awareness and it raises money for them. By the end of the decade, it's associated with Greenpeace. And I think that's a really useful example of this move from a concern over specific issues of nuclear war to more general issues of care for the environment globally. And that's partly heralded by some mass environmental disasters, Chernobyl in 1982, Bhopal in 1984, Exxon Valdez in 1989. So there are big global events that start almost rejoining individual nations' anxiety about their environment, starts joining them together. the, The fact that Welsh farmers had to think about radiation levels in their fields shows how joined up Chernobyl and the rest of the world was. So there's a sort of global view. There's also quite a conservative idea of, cons- conser- of conservation. There's quite a conservative thread. There's quite a conservative thread of environmentalism as well. So Thatcher talks about being concerned about ra- the people in the rainforest, albeit in slightly colonialised language. Um, and she kind of has a, makes a green, quite a green speech to the European Parliament. The Green Party start you know, do the best the Green Party you've ever done, did up to that point was in the European elections of 1989. So whether that's about protesting the existing 
the existing parties, whether it's about individual concerns. I think we can see on many, many layers in sort of popular language, subcultures, politicians, at a European and an international level, that the environment becomes a way of tying together our concerns and our anxieties globally, I think. Sure. And I'm going to move on to a question which was submitted by Joe Brown. And he asks, would deindustrialization have happened anyway, even if Margaret Thatcher had failed to win re-election in 1983? I always find kind of counterfactual questions really difficult because there's so many different factors there. But I understand exactly what the question's about, really, because I think it's a sort of a question about the relationship between long, long historical processes and particular historical events. So I think the deindustrialization is a much longer process, much deeper rooted global shift. And particularly by the end of the 80s, there's a massive shift in international balances of power um, and where money comes from. But I think Thatcher's election in 83 does kickstart the particular direction and speed of that deindustrialization, whereby selling off the family silver becomes a way of both creating that individualised, competitive version of society driven by an economy rather than managed by a government, um, but is also a way of breaking trade union strengths and building the home and share-owning democracy. So I think that process of deindustrialization had particular political and maybe ideological significant for Thatcher, whereby it wasn't just about dealing with these global structures, it was almost turning them into a benefit, turning them into a way of getting rid of those really strong trade unions. Traditionally, the miners have been one of the strongest unions. They literally produce the coal that makes industrialization happen. Um, but also tying into that idea of moving towards different sorts of smaller competing units, the idea that competition is what will drive us forwards. So I think deindustrialization has a particular resonance with Thatcherism. Now, of course, the miners' strike is undoubtedly the most famous, most notorious example of this sort of process of the industrialization in the early 1980s. And how deep a scar did that event leave on the nation? I guess that question really depends on where you are in that nation, because it it affected and created such a divided version of the country that where you are, where you were, where your family was, completely defines what the miners' strike meant for you. And it destroyed communities, you know. It destroyed communities in terms of the infrastructure that had been built and supported by trade unions, brass bands, sports clubs, trade and social clubs, right? Unions weren't just part of a workplace negotiation. They were ways in which they were the glue that held communities together. It destroyed communities in different ways. There were different experiences between different regions, between it's very different being a a minor striking in Nottingham, where there are smaller amounts of you than it is in South Yorkshire, for example. So different experiences, different scars. But those scars are still there. There are still families who remember who broke a strike, who didn't break a, a strike, um, who's, who had family members in the police force at different points. You know, those memories are still very strong. One final thing on, on Margaret Thatcher. It, it, at the beginning of, of the interview, you were very keen to emphasise the ism does that mean that you think we maybe put much put too much attention on Margaret Thatcher, the individual, the, the personality, when we look back at the 80s? 
I mean, don't get me wrong, Thatcher's personality is absolutely fascinating in terms of not just as being the first woman prime minister, but what sort of woman she had to be. If you think about the voice, if you think about the dress, if you think about the amount of her ministers who were obsessed with her ankles and write about them in their diaries and memoirs. But no individual is an explanation of historical change. Indeed, none of that explains how people voted for her or why they voted for or continue to vote for her. And in some ways, I think the opposition's problem, the Labour's problem, was that it really did focus on Thatcher and became kind of anti-Thatcherism. And there's a bit of a void, perhaps, in terms of thinking what Labour actually stood for. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Yeah, so just to elaborate on, on, on that a little bit, I mean, why did it go so badly for the Labour Party in, in the 1980s? I mean, why was the party forced to endure an entire decade in opposition? It's really interesting, isn't it? And I think it, it, and I guess the feelings, if you weren't a Conservative supporter, the feelings around what it's like to have a Tory government through the whole of the 80s is probably what it feels like to be, to be a Remain voter in the European referendum and Brexit to have gone ahead, right? That it feels like everyone in your bubble thinks like you do. So I think the Labour Party's always been a broad church. It's always been a kind of more, sometimes more, sometimes less harmonious choir of militants, reformers, trade union members, middle grounders, Bevanites, Fabians, Christian socialists, middle-class lefties, all of that stuff. And And in the 1980s, that the hating Thatcher or being opposed to Thatcher is not enough glue to stick those different things together into one coherent party. And what I've always found really interesting is if you think about the 80s as the period when there's kind of more sorts of activism, there's more sorts of issues to be involved with, there's more sorts of identity politics, as we call it. Labour is kind of crumbling under the weight of all of those different issues when other groups are picking up single issues quite happily. I think partly Labour's never been very good at understanding why people don't vote for them. So they tend to blame 
stupid, selfish people for not voting for them rather than looking at themselves. And I think those that that avoided that kind of inward, maybe that avoided sort of outward blaming everyone for not voting for them, stopped them kind of looking at themselves. But it also increased the fragmentation. So it became a it became one or other factions problem. One or other faction was responsible for keeping the Conservatives in power. So people have argued that Militant, for example, kept the Conservatives in power. Um, and you can see that when you can see ultimately Labour Party does start to fracture. It can't hold those different voices together anymore. We see that with the splitting away of maybe the more right-wing side of the Labour Party and the um, the establishing of the Social Democratic Party and also the expulsion of militant. It's almost like there's a sacrifice to be made of the 80s to try and get a particular version of Labour produced. Okay, so to move on, I have here a question from uh, Ali Lee, and that is, how much fear of nuclear war was there among the masses in the 1980s? How did the shadow of the bomb shape Britain, both politically and culturally? It's funny, I, I, talk about, I was talking about this quite a lot with my friends at the, at the weekend, actually, that we, so I grew up in Oxford, which is just near to Upper Hayford and Greenham Common. And we were absolutely, absolutely convinced that a nuclear war was inevitable and absolutely believed that. And that seems kind of weird now, right? But actually, we completely believed it. I think that... Yeah, I was a, that was as a, as a kind of young child. It may well be that people didn't necessarily, people in power might not have thought that. There's certainly lots of different activist groups, religious groups, peaceful groups, international partnership groups who really believed that the, the mutually assured destruction model was too high risk, unsafe. And we knew from the number of reported near misses and I'm sure there's other near misses that weren't reported but that balance was not was not secure enough that 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 the idea that the threat of mutually assured destruction was not enough yes so I think there's also also there's a generational experience of the second world war which for which people had been told they kind of sacrificed everything they put they'd missed their families their kids had been evacuated their family their male family members had been horrifically injured or left traumatized that the deal has was supposed to have been done and the you know things were supposed to be even and on the united nations and nato were going to keep everything on an even keel and so there was a generational a different generational experience for those who were older who had, had already done were told they'd done all the work They've done all the work to ensure global peace, and there is a new threat. And that partly tie, does tie into some of the later environmentalism, I think. So I think for young people, it was absolutely... You know, there was a lot of young people who believed that their parents and their parents' generation had failed, and this is what we've got now, and we're all going to die in a nuclear, in, in, in nuclear holocaust. And how was that reflected in, culturally in the arts, in especially the in, it, you know in the, in the sphere of pop music? I mean... From what I can remember, the eighties, this is something that's really prominent in, you know, in, in the pop charts. Can you can you give us a few examples of that? Well, I think it's not surprising that Cold War cultures are in kind of made it through pop music because they were absolutely everywhere. Graphic novels, uh, clothing design, television series. I mean, some of the biggest propaganda that was the most successful propaganda was TV series like Threads. So it's not surprising that um, there were Cold War cultures coming out through music production because they were coming out everywhere. But I think that the music video also really helped to tell 
a song story or add a layer of meaning to it that particularly could be you know, could be a t- particularly attached to issues around nuclear war. So one of the most famous examples, I think, is um, Frankie Goes to Hollywood's video for Two Tribes, which um, on one sense could just be a sort of general anti-war song. But in the video, because you have the American president and the Soviet leader fighting it out in a kind of bear pit while all of the countries from the, the countries of the world watch them from the outside, I think, really made it really clear that this is about... This is about two leaders. This is about kind of men. This is about being something being imposed for the entertainment of others. So I think that that kind of two tribes video is a really, really good example. And it also has a sort of Holly Johnson, the lead singer, is presenting himself as a kind of MC, almost as though the press are, commentate, are commenting on this war for their own purposes to sell their own newspapers to tribes. So I think this it's a really nice snapshot of how Cold War cultures are about nuclear fear, but they're also about governments and international relations and politicians thinking that, you know, politicians squaring up to each other while people are scared in their beds that they're gonna, there's going to be a nuclear holocaust. Now, there's an image, isn't there, of the 80s of it, being the decade of uh, get rich quick, rampant consumerism of, you know, uh, the rise of finance in the city of London. How much were yuppieism and rampant consumerism widespread? I don't think there's anything particularly new about really rich people at the top making lots of money and having public displays of wealth. But I think what is different is who got to be in that who got to be in that group of rich people shifted away from maybe a particular class model that we'd had in the past. And some of that was about opening up of access to higher education, to universities, early computerization, kind of allowing different skills to be developed by different people. Um, and, I mean, the press loved a story about, you know, posh, drunk Sloanes with champagne in their hands or blokes in shiny suits with big, fat mobile phones. I think it was also the decade of charity and philanthropy and fundraising. If you think Live Aid and Band Aid, although that model wasn't new, pop stars raising money for a cause. So there was Oxfab in the 60s with the Beatles and my favourite example, Ted Heath recording music to raise money for the National Playing Field Association in the 1960s. That idea of the, the charity single and the mega event really do come into their own in the 80s and that's partly to do with the technology that was available. But it's also to do with the fact that people were thinking in those philanthropic charitable ways. So whether that's Blue Peter campaigns, phone-in TV marathons, Comet Relief is launched in 1985 as a London marathon. When that's launched, that immediately becomes a fundraising opportunity for charities in the UK that it doesn't in other countries. So there's more money raised for more different charities in the 1980s than there have been before. So I think... There is that individual greed is good, but there's also collectively a sense that there's we can mitigate that and there's some good that should still be done. So let's talk briefly about Live Aid then, because I can remember vividly where I, where I was uh, when that was happening. I mean, how big an event was that in the 1980s? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think it now becomes almost a ubiquitous 1980s event and it's the event that footage of Live Aid must be in any media representation of the 1980s at some time and it's full of great sound bites um, and it captures a moment in pop music where they're kind of some of the big established 
acts that maybe are kind of on the way out, status quo or queen, reinvent themselves, reinvigorate themselves and some newer acts um, completely fail to get to sort of completely fail to connect with the, the appropriate style needed, thinking about Adamant performing his current single rather than his back catalogue. Um, so I think it becomes the version of the 1980s. It absolutely sets a model. I think Band-Aid particularly sets a formula for the charity single that you can see being reproduced throughout the 1980s, whether that's for um, charities around local hospitals, whether it's for charities around drug education, whether they're um, charities for every time there's a disaster in the 1980s, there's a charity single in response to it. And there are attempts to reproduce the Live Aid model. And there are some successful ones. The Mandela, the Mandela gigs at Wembley are really successful and explicitly political, but there are also some ones that don't really come off. So it it's very hard to organise those events around raising awareness around HIV and AIDS, for example, until until Freddie Mercury dies and that it becomes a kind of memorial to Freddie Mercury. So not all causes are created equal. And the live aid model, I think, is a very is one that kind of gets reproduced on different scales. I think we've also learned a lot about the problems of um, the problems of Western charitable inter- interventions from overseas, the, where that money went, who the money went to. Um, I think we've we've learned a lot of lessons about the care that needs to be taken when you know people sitting in their homes watch something on news and see it's being upsetting. Actually, what makes us feel better isn't necessarily the most important thing. Now, you mentioned Freddie Mercury there, and that leads me on to my next question, which was submitted by Blake Johnson, who asks... How did AIDS affect Britain and how did it change its relationship to sex and sexuality? I thought this is such a great question. I mean, up up until kind of mass awareness of HIV and AIDS, the biggest concern around sex and sexuality was unwanted teenage pregnancies and the Gillick readings are sort of an important part of this story as well, I think. And the focus of sex education was largely on stopping girls having sex and largely on stopping them getting pregnant. Not wholly, there's still some stuff around sexually transmitted diseases. So I think that there is a, it is a, there is a shift in what sex education becomes. The first wave of sex education and, and the public health campaigns were really just trying to change the language. To, they were really the first wave of campaigns were setting up a bit of a fear in order to excuse using words that weren't normally used in the press and television. You couldn't say condom on the telly, right? You know, newspapers didn't use those words. So the first wave was actually changing the cultures and language of how do we talk about sex. I also think, you know, again, depending where you are, HIV and AIDS played out really differently. And if you lived in or loved or loved in or were close to those most affected communities, the relationship between HIV and AIDS and the existing prejudice and discrimination in society played out particularly. So it was within those gay, predominantly gay communities, they had to build their own welfare state. Right? They had to provide their own communities of care. They had, used, had to use nightclubs as, as sites of fundraising and education and social support. They had to provide peer support, counselling, practicalities like somewhere to wash your sheets and a blender so that you can take in food. You know, they had to provide things that we would imagine the welfare state or the NHS would provide. So in those communities, it completely meant, made them, ha- they had to be self-sufficient with their care and their communities. Um, 
And I think that it's part of that community building, which then feeds into, with anger and grief, the campaigns around gay rights, against gay discrimination, um, around the age of consent, feeding into you know, gay marriage, I think, later in and the removal of the military ban. So those, you know, that kind of, those effective communities, those networks of love, grief and anger, I think really do change the face of politics in the UK. Now, the 80s began with a a, a wave of riots in some of um, Britain's largest cities, including London, Birmingham, Liverpool and, and Bristol. How would you say that race relations evolved over the over the decade, were we in a different position in 1990 as compared to 10 years before? I, I think, I think the, 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 even the understanding of what race relations means as a concept changes throughout the 1980s. When the Conservatives go in at the beginning of the 80s, then under their race relations policies, there's one thing, and that's about immigration control. And the assumption is that race relations are immigration control, um, not about what's happening within the country, not about disproportionate poverty, not about race, institutional racism. It's about not letting people into the country. So I think that sort of changes into a much more complicated understanding by the end of the decade about what race relations or multiculturalism might mean. So that, so I think the two things on that around immigration, but also the idea of cultures being different and that kind of that, defi- that separates us rather than cultures being something that bring us together. But we could look down another road, thinking about culture and think about music cultures and the rise of two-tone and ska and the sharing of experiences and music and food between communities. Um, you know, and that's a different version of what race relations might look like by the 1980s. I think the riots, one of the main impacts of the riots was really the Scarman report, which showed the relationship between areas of urban unrest and disadvantage or de- or deprivation and funding the urban programme going into those areas to try and sort of support them and build them back up. And there's a problem in assuming that there's a direct relationship between disadvantage, rioting, solve the rioting by dealing with the disadvantage, as though there aren't racist structures running through all of those things, or there isn't any agency for those communities. But there's a different, a very different approach from beginning of the decade, stop people coming in towards the end of the decade, let's start thinking about the conditions those people live in. Um, And there were much more complex debates about how we deal with racism, ideas of anti-racist education, um, minority broadcasting being written in to Channel 4's purpose. So there were channels for the predominantly Asian community, channels that started looking at experiences of the Afro-Caribbean community, they were called at the time. Things that which would have been written off as the kind of loony left in some local structures actually become completely mainstream. Okay, so let's talk now about something... um... Uh, a little bit lighter because we've had a, a question from Lauren who asks, how did the music of the decade reflect the feelings of Britain's youth? So, I mean, this is obviously an enormous topic. So I was wondering if you could just talk us through some of the main musical trends of the decade that really resonate with you. And I mean, you kind of touched upon this earlier in our chat when you mentioned video but I also wonder if you could just briefly take us the way that the way we access music changed over the decade yes because I think there's well there's three things there actually so one is how does um how do young people understand the world through the music that they listen to 
and how do they, I mean, that's as much as getting their ideas about the world through music. One is kind of what are the different sounds they're getting and the different genres and communities that it's building. And the third is kind of how do we, what is our relationship with music? How do we access it? And I think those are all really fascinating questions and they're enormous. I think one of the ways in which I understand the 1980s of music is to think about a compilation album, right? To think about now that's what I call music. So that is different tracks, some of them really good, some of them not so good, but they're cheap to put on there or they come as a buy one, get one free with another artist's song and things click together and they make sense to you in the moment when you listen to each song one after another, but they often have no business being there together. And I think that's what music was like in the 1980s, a lot of stuff that had no business being together. So... Those established musicians like Status Quo or Queen who really, really embraced the 80s and start doing something really interesting with traditions of rock alongside kind of folk punk, you know, thinking about Billy Bragg or even, you know, thinking about post-punk bands like Crass who were really saying, or Chumbawamba, who were really saying quite complicated political things in their music. Might not get in the charts with all of their songs, but they are, those records are selling it massively. They're just not going to get into the charts. But alongside that, we've got charity singles, which I'm a massive fan of, novelty records, TV themes or TV characters singing songs, um, parodies of other songs being produced constantly, um, and football teams, TV themes, all of those songs all together alongside what we now look back on as the kind of golden music of the period, Kim Wilde, Hazel O'Connor, Eurythmics, in terms of women, Alison Moyet, things that look a bit Uh, We might think queerer, thinking about new romantics, Boy George, ideas of sexuality being played out, thinking about class and race with two-tone and scar and some of the kind of post-punk stuff, thinking about um, a kind of a different sort of cold analytical framework, thinking about electronica and using machines to elicit emotions you know those are all kind of really important musical scenes and you could probably do a really complicated family tree of them all if you know, if that's where you, what you were minded to do <laughs> and a bit like everything else in the 1980s I think for me the way in which we experience music really illuminates that theme of the tension between the individual consumer and the collective, whether that's a collective of a band, collective of a subculture or a fan group, or collectors, the collective of an audience. So the two kind of extremes are one, the Walkman, which is the most Thatcherite way you could possibly listen to music, right? It's completely mine. It's completely individual. I am going to, I'm going to, have built my own personal soundtrack to the world and I'm gonna not I'm not gonna share it with anyone unless you have one of those ones where there's a second jack and person walking next to you can plug their headphones in. Right. So classic kind of like that's as satury as it gets. Or you compare that to MTV in in gyms or video jukeboxes in pubs, which are music videos being explored and and listened to collectively whether the other people in the pub want to listen to it or not so if someone goes up and puts that it was quite a lot I think it was like 50p to put a song on a music on a music video jukebox the whole pub has to sit and watch it whether they want to or not so that idea of kind of the 80s as being about that frisson between individual and collective identities and experience I think music's a great way into that who would you say was the most important artist of the 1980s? If you had to, if you had to mention one uh, musical artist to our listeners who really changed the trajectory of the decade, which one would it be? 
Bananarama, absolutely no doubt. Absolutely no doubt. Why is that? So I think, I mean, they're, they're the most successful group, right? They are the most successful group, and yet they're never taken seriously. They talk about feminism in Just 17. They support girls' projects. They write songs about the war in Northern Ireland. They make videos that take, take, take the mick out of the things that the press take the, take the mick out of them for. They completely demonstrate sort of sisterhood, um, I call it the sisterhood of the eye roll, the way that kind of some people in the room know what's going on, some people might not. Um, yeah, they are without doubt the most important band of the 1980s. Now we have a question from Susie1340 who asks, the 80s was a decade in which Princess Diana became arguably the most famous person in the world. How did she alter the country's relationship to celebrity culture? She definitely changed the way in which we understand and talk about celebrity. Like post-Diana is such a thing, isn't it? I mean, there are historical precedents or during her life or around her death. There are people who we looked to the past to find people who'd been a bit like her before. So Sheila Rowbottom, the historian, uh, talked about Princess Caroline who'd married George in 1795 as being a predecessor of, of the Diana moment, Diana effect. Uh, Amanda Foreman's biography of Georgiana, Duchess of Devonshire, found some sort of similarities. But I think it changed, I think Diana in her life changed the relationship, the covenant between the press, the monarchy and the people and the idea of images of the monarchy as currency. And I think Diana, in her divorce and becoming newly single, changed some of the ways that we think about that we think about intimacy and we think about the family. And in her death, changed the way in which we think about public displays of death. I mean, there had been public displays of death before, Nureyev's funeral, Churchill's funeral, etc. But it changed the way in which we talk about it. And how does she shape the media? Yeah, I mean, this this all looks very different now and on the other side of kind of phone tapping scandals, doesn't it? Um, you know, the explanations of how those private recordings suddenly leaked out doesn't didn't really hold up then, does it? But it certainly looks different now. Um, change the media in terms of the, the she became the story in the media became the story of her relationship with the media. So not only could she refuse or give an interview, she could then there could then be another layer of stories about whether she had really refused or given an interview. That kind of to the unfolding of the Andrew Morton book, where it turns out that. The, you know, the friends of Diana who she'd been interviewed had been Diana. That became another news story. So the ability for the media to resell their stories um, over and over again based on the story of the story of the story, I think, um, changed the relationship between the press, press particularly. And I think the idea of press intrusion which is also something that a lot of musicians start singing about around this time, often in their second album, where they start thinking, you know, they've experienced success. The idea of that idea of press intrusion, the lack of privacy being publicly owned at a time when everything else is being privatised, I think I've always thought that's quite an interesting tension. Um, I think that changes the relationship with the press, and that's tragically embodied with her death, right? Okay, why has the decade, this decade, the 1980s, proved such an enduring cultural reference point in a way that, you know, other other decades, apart from maybe the 60s, haven't. It's interesting, isn't it? Partly, I think it's because the 80s kept telling us how important it was at the time. Um, but I also think it's to do with the, amount, the, the, the multiple ways in which the, in which the decade left its traces, partly because of, 
all of the new forms of media technology that developed around VHS, cable, satellite broadcasting, outside broadcasting with smaller cameras, different broadcasting formats, formats, CDs, Betamax, Minidisc, all of that stuff. It left its traces in so many places. I think partly it's about generational position. I think partly it's about generational positioning. Like a lot of people like you and me who grew up in the 1980s are now at, you know, in positions where they're creating cultural narratives reusing that footage of Live Aid over and over again um, and have, have kind of brought those experiences with them. Apart, it's around some of the ideas around culture and media and memory that emerged in the 1980s, our ideas around invented traditions, nostalgia, retro cultures, those actually come from the 1980s. And so we can we kind of pick them up and we continue to use them and apply them back on themselves. It's a decade that was all, was already then looking backwards and at the present at the same time. So, you know, lots of mod revivals or the reggae revival, Northern Soul, kind of um, those kind of Victorian-y frocks-on-the-box films that we get everywhere. There's a lot of kind of various music revivals or theatrical revivals. So the 80s was kind of really aware of itself as an important decade, self-periodising in the moment, but it also set up this practice of looking back in the present that I think we, yeah, has carried on ever since, and now we now apply to the 80s. That was Lucy Robinson. Her book... Now That's What I Call A History of the 1980s is published by Manchester University Press. You can find plenty more episodes on different decades of Britain's history in our Everything You Wanted to Know series. Just search for The Decade You're After in your podcast feed to bring that up. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 